But what really galls me is the people saying, Ralph Nader and the Green Party are the reason Gore lost the election. And if Gore was president right now, everything would be all better. <laughs> well, maybe they have a point if you look only superficially, because what was it, 500 votes separating Bush and Gore when our Supreme Court arbitrarily ended the recount and crowned King George the next president? Contrasting that with 97,000 votes in Florida for Ralph Nader and almost 3 million nationwide, superficially they have a point, but when you look beneath that, hey, wait a minute, Nader and the Greens didn't cost Gore the election, Gore cost Gore the election. By driving so many of us who originally were gung-ho members of the Democratic Party into the hands of a third party, there's no way we were going to vote for anybody, even if Bush was the alternative, if the other supposed opponent was also pro-death penalty, pro-drug war, pro-WTO, pro-destroying the welfare benefits. Gore was also pro-Star Wars. There's no way I, for one, am going to vote for anybody who is that toxic and that far on the wrong side of things I care that deeply about. And that was And Gore Made Us Want to Ralph by Jello Biafra, which you can find on his album Machine Gun in the Clown's Hand. Greetings and welcome back to Bernie. 2016. This is an independent podcast established to follow and comment on Bernie Sanders' candidacy and our revolution, the movement that he helped inspire. This podcast is completely independent of any candidate, party, PAC, or political organization. If you want to reach out to me, you can send me a message at BernieUS2016 at gmail.com, or you can follow me on Twitter at BernieUS2016. You can find out more about Bernie 2016 at Bernie-2016.com. And on that site, you can find back episodes and you can view the Flipboard magazine, Bernie for President, where I've collected a whole lot of information on Bernie and now on Jill Stein and the Green Party and her run for the president presidency. If you want to support this podcast, you can do so by going to Patreon, patreon.com slash unrelated things. So getting started this week from Politicus USA by Jason Easley. Senator Bernie Sanders is taking action against billionaires like Trump who dodge taxes with new legislation that closes the wealthy's tax avoidance loopholes. In a statement, Senator Sanders said, quote, special tax breaks and loopholes in a corrupt tax code enable billionaires and powerful corporations to avoid paying their fair share of taxes while sticking the burden on the middle class. It's time to create a tax system which is fair and which asks the wealthy and the powerful to start paying their fair share of taxes. Here is a list of loopholes that Senator Sanders is trying to close. Exemption for real estate from passive loss rules. 
The Pass of Lost Rules, enacted as part of President Ronald Reagan's Tax Reform Act of 1986, generally bar taxpayers from using losses from a business the taxpayer is not really involved in to offset active income. An exception was made for real estate, meaning Trump can use his real estate losses to offset any other income, whether it is book royalties or compensation for starring on The Apprentice. Exemption for real estate from at-risk rules. Also enacted as part of the Tax Reform Act of 1986, the at-risk rules bar taxpayers from claiming losses for investment beyond the money they put in or that they are directly liable for. Again, real estate was largely exempted. Like-kind exchanges. Usually, capital gains on property are taxed when the property is sold, but taxpayers can swap pieces of property of the same type and claim that they have no gain to report to the IRS because there was technically no sale. The exchanges are often a sham because they often involve vastly different properties. Debt and depreciation. Under current law, investors can combine tax breaks for borrowing with tax breaks when an investment rapidly loses value. So an investor like Trump can borrow money to make an investment, take deductions for the interest he pays on the debt, and take deductions if the property depreciates. Bernie Sanders is literally out to make Donald Trump pay. Free riders like Donald Trump hurt the U.S. economy by taking advantage of public services while not paying their fair share of the bill. What Donald Trump did was smart, wasn't smart, it was selfish. Trump expects people who are struggling to keep the lights on and food on the table to subsidize him. When billionaires like Donald Trump pay what they should be paying, it lessens the burden on everyone else. Bernie Sanders is planning to drop the hammer on tax-avoiding billionaires like Donald Trump when the next session of Congress gavels in. And if Hillary Clinton wins the White House, Sanders will have a president standing by and ready to sign his legislation if Democrats can get it through Congress. And this next piece is from filmsforaction.org, and it's written by Kelly Hayes. All native struggles in the United States are a struggle against erasure. The poisoning of our land, the theft of our children, the state violence committed against us. We are forced to not only live in opposition to these ills, but also to live in opposition to the fact that they are often erased from public view and public discourse outside of Indian country. The truth of our history and our struggle does not match the myth of American exceptionalism, and thus we are frequently boxed out of the narrative. The struggle at Standing Rock, North Dakota has been no exception, with water protectors fighting tooth and nail for visibility ever since the Sacred Stone Prayer Encampment began on April 1st. For months, major news outlets have ignored what's become the largest convergence of Native peoples in more than a century. But with growing social media amplification and independent news coverage, the corporate media had finally begun to take notice. National attention was paid. Solidarity protests were announced in cities around the country. 
the National Guard was activated in North Dakota. The old chant, the whole world is watching, seemed on the verge of accuracy in Standing Rock. And then came today's ruling with a federal judge finding against the Standing Rock Sioux and declaring the construction of the pipeline could legally continue. It was the ruling I expected, but it still stung. I felt the sadness, anger, and disappointment that rattled many of us as we received the news. But then something happened. Headlines like, quote, Obama administration orders ND pipeline construction to stop. And, quote, the Obama administration steps in to block the Dakota Access Pipeline, began to fill my news feed with comments like, quote, thank God for Obama attached to them. Clearly, a major plot twist has occurred, but it's not the one that's being sold. To understand that this isn't the victory it's being billed as, you have to read the fine print in the presently lauded joint statement from the Department of Justice, the Department of the Army, and the Department of the Interior. Quote, The Army will not authorize constructing the Dakota Access Pipeline on corpse land bordering or under Lake Oahe until it can determine whether it will need to reconsider any of its previous decisions regarding the Lake Oahe site under the National Environmental Policy Act or other federal laws. Note what's actually being said here, what's being promised, and what isn't. What is actually being guaranteed? Further consideration. But this next section is a little more promising, right? Quote, Therefore, construction of the pipeline on Army Corps land bordering or under Lake Oahe will not go forward at this time. The Army will move ex expeditiously to make this determination, as everyone involved, including the pipeline company and its workers, deserves a clear and timely resolution. In the interim, we request that the pipeline company voluntarily pause all construction activity within 20 miles east or west of Lake Oahe. So things are on hold at Lake Oahe until the powers that be think it through some more, with no assurances about how they'll feel when it's all said and done. The rest is a voluntary ask being extended to the company. Let's reflect on that for a moment. A company that recently sicked dogs on water protectors, including families who stepped onto a sacred site to prevent its destruction, is being asked to voluntarily do the right thing. But the thing is, they probably will for a moment, because what's being asked of them isn't actually reroute. Right now, all that's being asked is that they play their part in a short-term political performance aimed at letting the air out of a movement's tires. Presidential contender Hillary Clinton was beginning to take a bit of heat for her silence on the Standing Rock struggle. Between Jill Stein's participation in a lockdown action, broadening social media support for the cause, and the beginnings of substantial media coverage, no DAPL was on the verge of becoming a real thorn in Clinton's side. And with more than 3,000 natives gathered in an unprecedented act of collective resistance, an unpredictable and possibly transformational force was menacing a whole lot of powerful agendas.
So what did the federal government do? Probably the smartest thing they could have. They gave us the illusion of victory. As someone who organizes against state violence, I know the patterns of pacification in times of unrest all too well. When a black or brown person is murdered by the police, typically without consequence, and public outrage ensues, one of the pacifications we are offered is that the Department of Justice will investigate the shooting. It's a de-escalation tactic on the part of the state. It helps transition away from moments when rage and despair collide, creating a cooling-off period for the public. Quote, justice is still possible, we are told. We are asked to be patient as this very serious matter is investigated at the highest level of government and given all due consideration. The reality, of course, is that the vast majority of investigations taken up by the DOJ Civil Rights Division end in dismissal. A batting average is pretty much inverse to that of other federal investigations. But by the time a case gets tossed at the federal level, it's probably not front-page news anymore, and any accumulated organizing momentum behind the issue may have been lost. Because to many people, the mere announcement of a federal investigation means that the system is working. Someone is looking into this, they're assured. Something is being done. Important people have expressed that they care, and thus, there is hope. So how is this similar to what's happening with Standing Rock? It's the same old con game. Federal authorities are going to give a very serious matter a very serious consideration, and then we'll see. The formula couldn't be clearer. As the joint statement says, quote, this case has highlighted the need for a serious discussion on whether there should be nationwide reform with respect to considering tribes' views on these types of infrastructure projects. Discussion. How many times have marginalized people been offered further discussion when what they needed was substantive action? And how often has the mere promise of conversation borne fruit for those in a state of protest? But this is a great moment for the Democrats. A political landmine has been swept out of Hillary Clinton's path and Obama will be celebrated as having, quote, stopped a pipeline when the project has at best been paused. After all, an actual pause in construction outside of the Lake Oahe area assumes the cooperation of a relentless, violent corporation that has already proven it's willing to let dogs loose on children to keep its project on track. But Dakota Access LLC probably will turn off its machines for a very little while. They'll wait for the media traction that's been gained to dissipate and for the no dapple hashtag to get quieter. They'll wait until the political moment is less fraught and their opposition is less amped. And then they will get back to work if we allow it. Here's the real story. This fight has neither been won nor lost. Our people are rising and they are strong, but the illusion of victory is a dangerous thing. Some embrace it because they don't know better. Some because they need to. We all want happy endings. Hell, I long for them and I get tired waiting. 
But if you raise a glass to Obama and declare this battle won, you are erasing a battle that isn't over yet. And by erasing an ongoing struggle, you're helping to build a pipeline. And next up, from Jill2016.com. Jill Stein, Green Party presidential candidate, responded today to an open letter from Russian environmentalists Yevgenia Chirikova and Nadezhda Kudapova. First of all, thank you for your courageous actions to protect our planet and fight for political freedoms. Those who stand against entrenched political and economic power often face retaliation from the elites who are leading us into economic, social, and ecological crisis. Sadly, this is true in the United States as well as in Russia. My views regarding Russia and even my specific statements have been grossly misrepresented by certain actors in the media and political establishment. There is a growing tendency in American politics to label critics of the established order as agents of Russia working against the United States. For example, when WikiLeaks exposed massive corruption at the highest levels of the Democratic Party, high-ranking Democratic Party officials and their supporters in the media began attacking WikiLeaks as an alleged agent of Russia, despite their inability to produce any hard evidence to support this claim. This tactic of smearing critics as Russian agents is the mirror image of the Putin administration's tactic of labeling Putin critics as agents of the West. It's reminiscent of the shameful history of Russia baiting attacks against political opposition leaders like Martin Luther King Jr. In this climate of growing anti-Russian sentiment, my visit to Russia to participate in a panel on international relations became a target. Andrew Weiss, a member of the Clinton Global Initiative and the Council on Foreign Relations, tweeted a video from my Moscow trip with a claim that I was, quote, gushing over Russian support for human rights. Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Glenn Greenwald quickly pointed out that this claim was completely false. My comments were in reference to the Conference on International Relations with political figures from around the world, many of whom expressed support for my vision of a foreign policy based on diplomacy, respect for international law, and human rights. At the same time, Democratic political consultant John Arevois spread the claim that I, quote, only criticize the U.S., and refused to criticize Russia. As Greenwald pointed out, another falsehood. In my comments on international relations, I criticized both the governments of the United States and Russia for putting resources into military spending that would be better and more justly spent on critical domestic needs. This is a matter of public record. Yet the fact that I criticized Russian military policy in Moscow was ignored by people like Washington Post reporter Ann Applebaum, who tweeted that I was, quote, pro-Putin candidate. On Joy Reid's show on MSNBC, former naval intelligence officer Malcolm Nance stated, quote, Jill Stein has a show on Russia today. 
a blatant falsehood that Reed refused to correct even after Adam Johnson of Fairness and Accuracy and Reporting publicly brought it to her attention. So it's not surprising that many people are confused after hearing prominent members of the political and media establishment repeat stories that run counter to the facts. You have asked, quote, how is it possible to have a discussion with Mr. Putin and not mention, not even once, the fate of Russian political prisoners or the attacks against Russian journalists, artists, and environmentalists? The answer is simple. I did not have any discussion with Mr. Putin. Although we sat across from each other at the same table, there was no interpreter present, so there was no opportunity to discuss human rights or anything else with him. Regardless, if elected president of the United States, I will do everything in my power to advance the cause of human rights around the world. First, the United States must lead by example, by respecting the human rights of our own people, freeing our own political prisoners, and addressing the anti-democratic and anti-environmental forces in our own society. I will also meet with Russian leaders, journalists, activists, and members of civil society to discuss pressing human rights and environmental issues. As a member of the only American political party that refuses to accept money from corporations, I can serve as an honest broker for these critical discussions because the Green Party's only agenda is to secure peace, justice, democracy, and a livable planet for all people not to promote military and economic domination of other lands, as both Democrats and Republicans have done. In the America I grew up in, one of our greatest fears was war with the Soviet Union, which we knew could end in nuclear oblivion for both countries, if not the world. So it is frightening to see Hillary Clinton, who has enthusiastically supported bloody wars in Iraq, Libya, and elsewhere, turn her belligerence towards Russia. Clinton supports a no-fly zone over Syria, which could push the U.S. into an air war with Russia. More recently, Clinton accused Russia of hacking into the Democratic National Committee and even state election systems and warned that as president, she would respond to, quote, cyber attacks with, quote, serious political, economic, and military responses. War between the U.S. and Russia is a horrifying prospect that would be disastrous for Americans, Russians, and the planet we share. Yet we seem headed down that dangerous path with the belligerent and hysterical anti-Russian rhetoric we now hear regularly from Clinton and her supporters, both Democrats and Republicans. I hope that we can meet in the near future to discuss human rights and environmental issues in Russia and around the world. I am committed to supporting your struggle for human rights and a sustainable future, which is our struggle as well. I am committed to peace and a dialogue between the American and Russian people. As the great Russian dissident and advocate against nuclear war, Andrei Sakharov said, our strategy of peaceful coexistence and collaboration must be deepened in every way. It is my sincere hope that many more Russians and people of every nation will join our global green family so that together we can continue working towards a world that puts people, planet, and peace over profit. In solidarity, Jill Stein. And here's a piece by Ralph Nader 
from WashingtonPost.com. In his August 24 op-ed, 2016's Ralph Nader, with a question mark, Dana Milbank accused Green Party presidential nominee Jill Stein of making, quote, more likely the singular threat of a President Trump. He echoed legions of Democratic Party partisans who never think it's time for a progressive third-party presidential candidate to run because the Republican candidates are always worse. They use politically bigoted words such as spoiler, reserved for treating third-party candidates like second-class citizens. Many otherwise tolerant reporters, columnists, and editorial writers are quite okay with smaller candidates being obstructed in many ways from ballot access to the debates. Such discrimination counters a candidate's civil liberties. Everyone has an equal right to run for public office. What kind of twisted logic insists that smaller party competitors should forfeit their First Amendment rights to speak, petition, and assemble freely? Dissent and resistance that attract voters historically have improved politics and achieved justice in our country. Aren't liberals pleased that earlier third parties ballot access was easier in the past, and their votes rejected Mr. Milbank's kind of advice. In 1840, the Liberty Party first opposed slavery. Later, new parties fought the exclusion of women from voting, asserted the rights of farmers and industrial labor, and initiated calls for Social Security, unemployment compensation, minimum wages, health care for all, and electoral reforms. They first put on the table most of the positive improvements from government. Shamefully, the decaying Democratic Party works to block millions of voters from having a choice of progressive third-party candidates. No country in the Western world places more obstacles to third-party and independent candidates getting on the ballot than the United States. Democrats and Republicans built this exclusionary duopoly. As a result, major redirections and reforms, often supported by a popular majority, are excluded from electoral arenas. Without a competitive democracy, our political system cannot attract better candidates. A political monoculture with safe, gerrymandered incumbents serving myopic commercial interests is systematically undemocratic. It helps explain why the Democratic Party has been unable to defend this country from the worst Republican Party in history at the congressional and state levels. Mr. Milbank justified his don't run, drop out screed by referencing my campaign in 2000 as costing Democratic presidential nominee Al Gore the presidency. Were the Greens responsible for the absurd electoral college that threw an election? Mr. Gore won the popular vote handily. More than 300,000 registered Democratic voters in Florida voted for Republican nominee George W. Bush. Then Florida Governor Jeb Bush's administration unlawfully purged thousands of Democratic voters from the state's rolls, and Palm Beach County used deceptive butterfly ballots. The Florida Supreme Court's mandated recount was blocked by a narrow conservative majority on the Supreme Court that then selected Mr. Bush as president. Why blame the Greens for these and other sine qua nons? 
absent any one of which Mr. Bush would have been denied the presidency. Mr. Gore, who bore the brunt of a political coup from Tallahassee to the Supreme Court, has not scapegoated the Green Party. Scapegoating, besides debilitating its practitioners, has a grotesque and vindictive tale. Harassing lawful competitors while ignoring self-renewal and external reforms. Ms. Stein will not abandon the Green Party's resistance to Wall Street's disastrous attack on our economy, the bipartisan expansion of the war-making empire, and the bipartisan backing for bloated military and corporate welfare budgets that starve monies for public works and services. She opposes both parties indentured to the craven demands of moneyed interests. Let's stop the chronic censorious whining and work to secure fair, competitive elections for all candidates. And this piece from Common Dreams by Jake Johnson. Throughout the 2016 Democratic primary, left-wing critics of Hillary Clinton, including Bernie Sanders, were repeatedly smeared as racists, sexists, and class reductionists, or some combination of the three, by surrogates of the former Secretary of State and by the former Secretary of State herself. Clinton and her team, for instance, accused Sanders of making everything, quote, about an economic theory, claimed that, quote, black lives don't matter much to Bernie Sanders, and attempted to paint Sanders as someone who, quote, perpetuates sexist and misogynistic stereotypes. Nastiness in presidential primaries, of course, is nothing new. What was unique about this year, however, was the virtual unanimity with which the Democratic Party apparatus placed its weight on the scale in Hillary Clinton's favor. And prominent figures within the so-called liberal media were happy to pile on. It was repeatedly implied by the pro-Clinton commentariat that the campaign of Bernie Sanders represented little more than a left-wing version of the Trump phenomenon. We were told by such luminaries as Joan Walsh that Sanders derived his support primarily from white males looking to reassert themselves in a rapidly diversifying society. Walsh warned that if Sanders continued his attacks on the Democratic Party and its standard bearer, he risked becoming not the leader of a mass progressive movement, but, quote, the messiah of angry, heavily white and male cult. Critiques of this kind, and there were many, largely coalesced around the pernicious Bernie bro narrative, and few attempted a good-faith examination of Sanders' appeal from an ideological standpoint. They also, for obvious reasons, ignored Sanders' impressive support among young minorities and young women. When the primary was ongoing and competitive, with Sanders doing far better than anyone predicted, such attacks could have been viewed as standard electoral politics. Despite the fact that the critiques were disingenuous, they could be rationalized as attempts by partisans to go to bat for their favorite candidate. But even after Clinton emerged victorious, indeed, even after Sanders, to the dismay of many of his supporters, formally endorsed Clinton, 
The attacks continued, and in many ways they intensified. Perhaps it won't surprise you that Joan Walsh is still doing her best to accuse the anti-Clinton left of misogyny, homophobia, and transphobia. Last month, adding to the archive of left-punching conservative writer and ardent Clinton supporter James Kerchick enthusiastically denounced those he called, quote, the Hillary Clinton-loathing, Donald Trump-loving, useful idiots of the left. In this weirdest year, Kerchick wrote, there may be no weirder phenomenon than the rise of the progressive Donald Trump supporter. Among those apparently deserving of the label progressive Trump Trump fan are Glenn Greenwald, Rina Kalik, Zaid Jelani, Julian Assange, Jill Stein, and Katrina Vanden Heuvel, all of whom, according to Kerchik, are, quote, captive to a crude and one-dimensional anti-Americanism. The one sin that unites these progressive commentators, journalists, and political figures with Trump is, in other words, that they all dare to question the morality of America's use of force abroad. By linking left-wing criticism of American foreign policy with Trumpism, Kerchik is attempting, as Eric Levitz has noted, to delegitimize ideas without having to put forward anything resembling a coherent argument. Instead, Kerchik dubiously portrays Trump as an anti-imperialist, which he is not, to smear actual anti-imperialists. Quote, For champions of the bipartisan consensus on issues of national security and globalization, Levitz writes, Trump is an awfully convenient figurehead for challenges to the status quo. Far from innovative, Kerchik's tactic of using Trump to dismiss legitimate critiques of Hillary Clinton has become commonplace within the American political discourse, and shamefully, the so-called progressive wing of the Democratic Party has silently capitulated to this framework. And this piece from The Inquisitor dot com by caitlin johnstone war is quite literally the worst thing in the world and democrats are fine with it remember when george w bush outraged liberals with his illegal and immoral invasion of iraq remember when support for that disastrous war cost hillary clinton the democratic presidential nomination in 2008 well, it turns out that all that opposition to the Iraq invasion had nothing to do with all the death, destruction, suffering, slavery, rape, chaos, and terrorism, which were inflicted upon the region as a result of the invasion and forced regime change, but was in reality due solely to the fact that the war was overseen by a Republican president. The Democratic Party now has as its presidential nominee a candidate who not only supported the Iraq invasion, but continued saying she had no regrets about that decision long after it became clear that there were no weapons of mass destruction to be found there, and then later said that America should look at Iraq as a, quote, business opportunity. With much self-congratulatory fanfare, the Democrats have gleefully nominated a candidate who helped violently end the lives of 4,486 U.S. soldiers and more than a million Iraqi human beings with hopes, dreams, 
and families just like you and me. She led the interventionist charge in America's crucial role in toppling the Gaddafi regime in Libya, persuading a reluctant Obama administration to back the rebels and help depose the nation's leader. When Gaddafi was killed and his body mutilated in the streets, Hillary Clinton laughed about it on national television. The nation has been immersed in violence and chaos since that time. And it doesn't end there. From Syria to Honduras, it's fair to say that Hillary Clinton has been remarkably consistent in pushing for increased military interventionism throughout her political career. She has even been critical of the Obama administration for being too reluctant to utilize military aggression, despite the fact that Obama, who consistently spoke out against the Iraq invasion, has bombed seven countries, dropping 23,144 bombs on them in 2015 alone. But that isn't what I find so disturbing here. What I find absolutely terrifying is how the Democrats have been so overwhelmingly accepting of it. I'd like to offer a few hypothetical situations for your consideration to help illustrate what I mean, my lovely Democratic friends. I'd appreciate it if you'd join me in exploring this rabbit hole real quick. Consider the Iraq invasion for a moment. I know Hillary Clinton was not solely responsible for inflicting that unforgivable evil upon the earth but she undeniably helped. Please consider the fact that if Hillary Clinton had helped participate in a Deep South lynch mob where, say, a young black man was tortured to death by many people after a mock trial, nobody would ever forgive her for that. If she was just the one who brought the kerosene and helped bind the man's hands, she would still be viewed by the public as an evil monster, even if she wasn't the leader of the mob, and even if she wasn't the sole executioner. And the Iraq invasion unleashed far, far more needless death, destruction, and suffering upon the world than any lynching. Another hypothetical situation I'd like you to consider is this. What if Hillary Clinton had helped bring that destruction over here? What if your neighborhood was turned into rubble? What if it was you who didn't know if your family was alive or dead? What if it was your kids getting ripped apart by cluster bombs? What if it was your sister getting sold into sex slavery by ISIS because Clinton helped destabilize the region? Would you be so forgiving of Hillary's oopsie if you knew she had anything to do with visiting that destruction upon your world? If not, then why are you so accepting of it happening somewhere else, to other people's neighborhoods and loved ones? It's absolutely stunning how compartmentalized Americans are about the reality of war and what it does, and this election cycle has really brought all that to the surface. The few Democrats who have been brave enough to face up to the reality of Hillary Clinton's part in this horror usually justify their support for their candidate by saying something to the effect of, well, Trump would probably be even worse, or, but Trump wants to deport immigrants and build a wall. I'm not here to support Trump, 
but it's entirely baseless to say that he'll be more warlike than a candidate whose entire career promises to be a lot more bloody than the already blood-soaked administration which preceded it. Trump's platform has actually been less interventionist than Clinton's in many ways. With regard to Trump's vile and hateful domestic policy, I offer you another thought experiment. Picture a busload of immigrants being deported back to Mexico. Now picture a room full of children's bodies blown apart by a cluster bomb. Which image brings up a more visceral reaction for you? This one is challenging, I know, but please bear with me. Picture the room full of bombed children killed in one of Hillary's corporatist wars. And now imagine a gay couple being sad because Trump appointed a pair of conservative justices to the Supreme Court. And now the gay couple is being deprived of some of their rights. Which is worse? Again, room full of dead children, bodies shredded by cluster munitions, or a Muslim being denied entry into the United States? I'm not trying to defend Trump's positions on any of these issues or to dismiss the importance of immigrants' rights, gay rights, or Muslim rights. I'm trying to drive home my point that war is far, far worse than anything else on the table. There is nothing worse than war. War is the craziest, most destructive, least sustainable thing that human beings do. If war had never been invented and you tried to pitch the idea of it to a world leader today, they'd recoil in horror and think you were insane. But the Democratic candidate is in love with it. The truth is that neither candidate should be anywhere near the highest political office on the planet Earth. Seriously, how much evil would these two people have to wreak before Americans decide that they're disqualified for the position? If they each ate a human baby every morning, would Democrats say, quote, well, I'm not crazy about her baby eating policy, but at least she has a favorable position on immigration. I sincerely want to know because it doesn't seem like there's anything so vile that Democrats would consider it a deal breaker. We have a problem, America. We got a candidate on the right whose words disqualify him from the presidency and a candidate whose actions disqualify her from the presidency on the left. But we're being told that there are only choices. Something's got to change. And from HuffingtonPost.com. By Ben Spielberg. As an outspoken supporter of Green Party presidential candidate Jill Stein, I often get questions akin to the one Stein was asked at the Green Town Hall on August 17. Quote, given the way our political system works, effectively, you could help Donald Trump like Ralph, Ralph Nader helped George Bush in 2000. How could you sleep at night? More often than not, such questions are followed by the claim that voting for Stein in November is an act of self-indulgent privilege. Only those with little to lose from Donald Trump presidency can afford to risk it by adhering to a rigid set of principles that will never come to fruition, third-party critics argue. People who might suffer under Trump's policies, on the other hand, understand the stakes involved in this election and that Hillary Clinton is the only practical alternative to Trump. This formulation misconstrues privilege dynamics and misrepresents the identities and considerations of third-party voters and others who refuse to support Clinton, who are far less often white, affluent, 
heterosexual men than their detractors seem to believe. The status quo is serving many people poorly, proclaiming that because the alternative is worse, everyone must vote for Clinton, a politician who has championed policies that have actively harmed millions of people, both here and around the world, is at its very best patronizing to those who are currently suffering. It's a promise of crumbs instead of a meal with the admonition that starving people better be thankful for crumbs, as the other candidate might take even those away. This rationale plays on the fears of disadvantaged people and those who care about them in order to perpetuate current power dynamics. Its use is in many ways an expression of the very privilege it critiques. Privilege is a multidimensional concept and very few people can claim to speak for the most downtrodden in society. Individuals writing widely read articles about the privilege of third-party voters aren't refugees from Central America who President Obama is currently deporting with Clinton's support until recently. They aren't incarcerated for marijuana possession or sitting on death row, likely to stay locked up or sentenced to die if Clinton becomes president. They aren't living under Israeli occupation or in deep poverty or afraid of being obliterated by a drone strike with little hope for change under the specter of a Clinton presidency. As Morgana Visser recently noted, many marginalized people are rightfully horrified of Hillary Clinton. And those accusing non-voters and third-party voters of privileged indifference to the plight of others have the privilege themselves not to be so marginalized that four or eight or indefinitely many more years of incremental change to the status quo is tolerable to them. The thing is, the argument that the Democrats are the only actual alternative voters have to Trump, that the status quo cannot be radically improved, and that incremental change is all that is possible, is one that many people cannot afford. Those of us voting for Stein seek to challenge this thinking, to fight for a world in which the most marginalized people are not consigned to deportation, lifetime imprisonment, poverty, or death at the hands of Democrats who are better than Republicans but not nearly good enough. Third-party voting and abstaining from the presidential election altogether are strategies designed to either change the Democratic Party or create an alternative in a political system that has failed disadvantaged populations for decades. And this next piece is from Bernie Sanders. U.S. Senator Bernie Sanders said Friday that opponents of a bad trade deal scored a major victory with an announcement by U.S. Senator Majority Leader Mitch McConnell that the Senate will not vote this year on the proposed Trans-Pacific Partnership. Quote, I welcome Majority Leader McConnell's announcement that he will block a vote in the Senate this year on the disastrous job-killing Trans-Pacific Partnership. This is good news for American workers, for the environment, and for the ability to protect public health. A leading opponent of the proposed Pacific Rim Trade Pact, Sanders welcomed McConnell's turnaround on the measure. The Republican leader on Thursday told an audience in Kentucky that he won't bring the pact to the Senate floor for a vote this year because, quote, it has some serious flaws. 
Last June, McConnell engineered congressional passage of a measure that gave President Barack Obama and future presidents power to fast-track negotiations with the 11 other countries, which are parties to the deal. He called it a very important accomplishment for our country. Quote, what changed between then and now is that the American people have sent a loud and clear message to Senator McConnell and others that they are tired of big corporations sending American manufacturing plants and jobs to low-wage nations overseas, Sanders said. A majority of Americans, 52%, says trade deals with other countries do more harm than good because they send U.S. jobs overseas and drive down wages. According to a June survey by the Brookings Institution and the Public Religion Research Institution, 60% of Republicans say the agreements are mostly harmful to the United States. Sanders also has harshly criticized a so-called investor state dispute system in the proposed and other trade pacts. The system gives multinational corporations and other investors the power to seek damages from an international tribunal if they believe the government decisions hurt profits. TransCanada, for example, has used the system to demand $15 billion from U.S. taxpayers over the Obama administration's correct decision to stop construction of the Keystone Pipeline because it would accelerate global warming. Sanders has called the dispute system insane. Quote, this treaty is opposed by every trade union in the country and virtually the entire grassroots base of the Democratic Party. In my view, it is now time for the leadership of the Democratic Party in the Senate and the House to go on record in opposition to holding a vote on this job-killing trade deal during the lame duck session of Congress and beyond, Sanders said. We need to defeat this treaty and fundamentally rewrite our trade policies to create good-paying jobs in this country and throughout the world and end the race to the bottom. And that will wrap up this episode of Bernie 2016. If you want to reach out to me, you can send me a message at BernieUS2016 at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at BernieUS2016. And heading out tonight, we will hear Candidacy by Utah Phillips. Thanks for listening. Why complain? Try to do something about it. You know, it's going on nine months now since I decided that I was going to declare that I am a candidate for the presidency of the United States. Oh, yes, I'm going to run. Shopped around for a party. Well, I looked at the Republicans. Decided talking to a conservative is like talking to your refrigerator. You know, the light goes on, the light goes off. It's not going to do anything that isn't built into it. And I'm not going to talk to a conservative anymore than I talk to my damn refrigerator. Working for the Democratic Party now, that's kind of like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. So I created my own party. It's, it's called the Sloth and Indolence Party. 
I am running as an anarchist candidate in the best sense of that word. I have studied the presidency carefully. I have seen that our best presidents were the do-nothing presidents, Millard Fillmore, Warren G. Harding. When you have a president who does things, we are all in serious trouble. If he does anything at all, if he gets up at night to go to the bathroom, somehow mystically trouble will ensue. I guarantee that if I am elected, I will take over the White House, hang out, shoot pool, scratch my ass, and not do a damn thing. Which is to say, if you want something done, don't come to me to do it for you. You've got to get together and figure out how to do it yourselves. Is that a deal?